Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to the first FT Advisor podcast of 2023. I'm Damien Fantato, Deputy Editor of FT Advisor. Last year was eventful, to say the least. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, the collapse of multiple UK governments, surging inflation, the death of Queen Elizabeth and a heat wave when the UK registered temperatures above 40 degrees for the first time, which seems a distant memory at the moment, given the sludge slash snow currently in London. So will 2023 be just as eventful? Let's find out. With me to discuss this are the FT Advisor editorial team. I'm with Sally Hickey, Sonia Rarch, Jane Matthews and Ruby Hinchliffe. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi. So I'm going to start with you, Sally, if I may. Last year was a an eventful one, as I said, for investment portfolios. We had uh, a certain degree of market turmoil. What has been on our investors' minds? So I think the shift in markets we saw last year should really not be understated. It was a really brutal year for anyone with any kind of investment portfolio. Uh, and I think it's been very unusual in that both equities and bonds have done terribly. So normally the, the standard portfolio will be 60% equities, 40% bonds, with the thinking that they move in different directions. Last year, it was the first year in recent memory that didn't happen. And in the, you know, the incoming recession that we we are perhaps in at the moment has meant that equity markets plunged. And the high inflation, which led to higher interest rates, meant that, that bond markets also did equally poorly. So I think that was quite a shock for everyone. And the conversation has now moved away from, you know, what is a good return to can I get any return for my money or at least will my investments keep up with inflation? And it doesn't look like inflation is coming down uh, in the UK. It was, I think, 10.7%, which was lower than it was in November. But I think that's still going to be uh, on investors' minds in the next couple of months at least. And I think... You know, a number of fund managers have been that I've spoken to recently have, have talked about this new normal for inflation. And, and they're starting to say, you know, we may see inflation now sit at 5% on the long term. And that is going to require quite a structural shift for investors, but also for the Bank of England. You know, their aim is to get inflation down below 2%. If various structural changes such as, you know, um, a move away from globalisation, if that means that inflation will stay higher for longer they're going to have to have another look at the mandate that, that is given to them by the government. Because if you push rates up too high, you're going to sort of squeeze the economy. And and the risk that we face is that interest rates are raised to try and slow this inflation. But all they impact is the level of growth in the UK economy, which means we get stagflation, which is where the economy is sort of high inflation, but low growth, which is not good news. You know, the UK is not looking good at the moment. Inflation is much, much higher than it is in the US and Asian economies, especially. So it's not great news for UK investors, unfortunately. You know, the Fed's making noises about perhaps slowing the speed of rate rises next year. But I think in the UK, we're definitely going to see uh, see higher interest rates. Something else I think will continue to be big news this year is everyone's favourite investment, uh, crypto. So the boom, and I know IFAs love crypto. You know, I think that this boom we saw that was coming at the tail end of, of 2021 and 22 has kind of come to an end. And, and that was shown in the quite dramatic collapse of FTX, uh, which was a cryptocurrency exchange. And, and FTX was really seen as the kind of sensible face of crypto. And, you know, it was rather dramatic. Uh, at the time we're recording this, Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder, is in custody in the Bahamas. He's awaiting extradition to the US. Um, he's been charged with a number of things. 
including wire fraud, which is quite a serious um, allegation. And effectively, $8 billion in customers' funds are said to have gone missing. Whether any of that money will be found is, you know, who knows. But I think that's really rattled a lot of people who, you know, just see crypto as a really unsafe investment and I can imagine IFAs especially are going to to, to be even louder in, in telling people just don't touch it at all. You can lose you know, you can lose everything. Mm-hmm. Well I suppose if you're going to be in custody, the Bahamas is as good a place as any to be in custody. Um, I have no personal experience of, of custody in the Bahamas so I can't... What, what has had <laughs> the biggest impact on portfolios uh, last year? I think that um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the start of last year was the biggest thing, mainly because it ended sort of 70 years of peace in Europe that I think it was it was again I use the word shocking a lot but I think a lot happened last year that was quite shocking I think what was really interesting to see when that happened was is what it did to the conversations around ESG before you know a lot of ESG funds have said we're not going to hold um, guns we're not going to hold weapons all of this kind of stuff and suddenly a lot of people were saying well actually our weapons a green investment or a sustainable investment because they're being used by the Ukrainian army to defend itself from an invasion. So all of, you know, ESG has also been thrown up um, for questioning because it has just changed a lot of what people think about it and really highlighted the fact that there is no definition of E or S or G. Um, And we're going to see the FCA's um, funds label uh, system come into force uh, this year. So I think that'll be interesting to see how it gets received by investors. And looking ahead to the to, to this year, uh, I suppose last year showed us that uh, predictions are a bit of a, a bit of a mugs game. But um, looking forward to this year, what are there any particular sectors or geographies that investors should be watching, uh, rather than necessarily predicting how they're going to perform? Yeah, and just a disclaimer that I'm not predicting these will do well. Uh, I think a couple of things to look at will be uh, definitely the bond market. Bonds are now, uh, at the time of of recording, pretty cheap. Um, A lot of people are now highlighting the fact that you can actually buy a bond for less than than the redemption value. So you can actually, you know, make much more money from a bond uh, in a very safe way. Uh, And I think this might then start to change the, the fortune of the 60 portfolio. I think we might see that portfolios start to work again uh, and factories and bonds to start moving in different directions so that would be quite kind of comforting news for investors you know i think the really interesting geography is asia both you know to start with china obviously the biggest uh, economy in asia a lot of you know a lot of companies have moved out of china because of the regulatory issues we've seen and and, and bailey gifford specifically was the kind of staunch supporter of china and Scottish mortgage at the end of last year said, actually, you know what, with all these crackdowns, we're going to move away um, from what's been happening. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what starts to happen there, because if if the country cuts itself off from international investment, I think that has what has fueled a lot of the globalisation that that has benefited their economy. And now that they're getting rid of the zero COVID policy, that's going to be quite probably quite a horrible news story to to watch. But I can imagine it's going to be in people's minds. Um, and, and looking elsewhere in Asia, I think one of the biggest things we've seen uh, in the past year is that a lot of Asian economies used to be incredibly exposed to the US dollar. Uh, you know, a lot of their debt was don- was dollar denominated, and that's no longer the case. They're much more inward facing. And so they've not been punished by the strong dollar we've seen at the end of the year. And they've also, a lot of them, kind of got their monetary pain out of the way a lot a lot faster than the UK and the US did so they're sort of a couple of years ahead of us in the cycle so I think you know I know I didn't say I was going to make predictions but I might make one now I think maybe you know Asians economies will will see a real a real boom in 2023. You heard it here first (laughs) put all your money there. (laughs) Please do not put all your money there. And 
linked to you know some of the some of the economic uh, issues that we've seen last year is obviously interest rates. The Bank of England has been very active on on, on that sort of things, and that has uh, that has its effect on on the mortgage market. So if we move to to Jane, we, Jane, the mortgage market was saw lots of upheaval last year. Um, Particularly the, um, um, you know, in, in the wake of the the, the mini budget, when m- mortgage loans were being pulled and being re, you know, what's the opposite of being pulled, pushed back onto the market. Um, what what can we expect to see in, in the residential mortgage uh, market uh, this year, Jane? Yeah, absolutely, Damien. It was quite a year for the mortgage market, um, particularly after September's mini budget, um, and the effects of that are still definitely being felt. It has kind of the market has kind of um, returned to a bit of normality, but the, you know, the rates are much higher than they were in September, but we have seen products return to the market um, in the last couple of months, but it is widely expected that house prices will fall um, in the new year. And the estimates for this range, we've seen predictions of between five and 30%, but most in the industry seem to expect to fall of around 10%, um, which would bring house prices back in line with pre-pandemic levels. And although this is positive news for first-time buyers, the rapid rise that we have seen in interest rates sort of counteracts this gain. Towards the end of December, we saw the Bank of England warn that mortgages are going to get considerably more expensive next year for millions of people. So some in the industry have said that this will take some heat out of the market, as a lot of people will choose to stay where they are but there is an expectation that others will choose to downsize to free up some cash and reduce their monthly outgoings. I thought that Karen Noy, who is a mortgage expert at Quilter, she summed up the situation well. She said, in her view, the market will suffer in the short to medium term, but because there's so little housing stock available, it won't be too long before we come out of that dip and we see house values start to go up again mm. in the new year. So there's a lot unknown, but there seems to be cautious hope among mortgage brokers and advisors that this year won't hold any of the same shocks that we saw last year. Mm-hmm. And looking towards the buy-to-let sector, that is because of tax changes and other regulatory changes, for example, around, around energy efficiency. There's, the story there is one of a more of a gradual shift towards it becoming, according to some, uh, more and more unattractive. Uh, what do you think we can expect uh, in the buy-to-let sector in 2023? Yeah, absolutely. I think you summed it up well there, Damien. Um, obviously, in the last year, we saw rents increase an awful lot across the UK. Um, Zoopla, according to their figures, they said that rents increased on average by 12% in the last year. And it doesn't look like they're going to come down at all in the new year. We can probably expect to see them continue to rise. And again, this is kind of largely down to the fact that there is such an undersupply of housing. But it's also partly because landlords have seen their costs increase towards the end of last year with the increases in mortgage interest rates. And it doesn't look like there'll be much change on that front in the new year. There does seem to be an expectation that we will see further professionalisation of the sector in the new year. Confidence among professional landlords is much higher than it is among part-time landlords, which is interesting. And I think that's kind of partly to do with the regulation that you talked about there, Damien. You know, a lot of part-time landlords are just finding them too cumbersome. And as a result, they're just choosing to maybe leave the market. Um, we also had the renters reform bill brought to Parliament last year. And once in place, that will give renters greater rights and protections. But that seems to have kind of fallen down the list of priorities for the government. So it's not clear when that will be in place. But obviously, you know, that would be a positive thing for renters if it does come into effect in the new year. So at the end of last year, UK Finance predicted that lending to landlords would fall around 27% 
next year. So I don't think we'll see the mass exodus from the market that some people are predicting. But overall, it does look like the sector will contract mm. this year. Oh, interesting. Interesting uh, uh, Interesting times ahead, maybe. Uh, one of the other long-term uh, trends in, in, that we've seen in, in, in the financial services sector, as well as the sort of gradually reducing attractiveness of, of vital letters being the continuing, ever-continuing march of, of M&A within the financial advice market. Uh, Sonia, if I can bring you in at this point, well, as every year has been for the past few years, 2022 was a, was a busy year for advice and M&A. Where do you see the uh, the advisor M&A market uh, this year? Yeah, so yeah, you're absolutely correct, Damien. Over 2022, we saw quite a lot of acquisitions in the space. More recently in December, we saw acquisitions from Kingswood, Perspective, Fairstone, and, and that wasn't kind of, you know, a one of a few. It was quite a one of many that we saw over December. So yeah, it's definitely been quite a, a busy space. And I think it's safe to say that the market will will, will still remain just as busy. However, I think the hands of the owners may change as, as there seems to be a shift in, in what's been happening over the last couple of years. Um, and I think 2023 will be different purely because we may, may see private equity markets, uh, private equity firms exit the market. Um, and, and one of the deals we saw this year that kind of highlights where perhaps uh, 2023 is heading um is Aviva buying the national IFA succession wealth, uh, for which the majority shareholder was private equity firm Inflexium. So I think we're probably likely to see more of the same with some PE firms exiting the market as they come to kind of the the end of the perhaps investment period. Uh, you know, it might be a five-year scale or a 10-year scale, but, but I think we're going to see the shift. And quite a few experts in the space have argued the same saying that you know new entrant private equity is is pretty much over now and we're unlikely to see new PE firms entering the space the PE houses that kind of wanted to enter have have found their positions now and I think those looking now can see it is sort of too competitive a market to enter as as those firms are already there so I think the big thing about this year will likely be kind of around how much price has grown and valuations but I think the market will remain relatively competitive but it, it seems as though we may see and hear less of PE firms. Something we're certainly going to hear more of I assume is the FCA um, but remind us uh, Sonia what, what has the um, FCA's area of focus been in 2022? Yeah, so I mean, I think the the answer, the way to answer that in the safest way would probably be to say what hasn't been their focus this year, because we have been overwhelmed with consultation papers and um, discussion papers coming out from the FCA over 2022. And it seems like, you know, a lot of those papers that have come out are likely to kind of be developing in 2023. So it will be just as kind of prominent hearing from the FCA. And I think the buzzword of the year was was obviously consumer duty. It was consumer duty in 2021. It was consumer duty in 2022. And it will likely stay that way in 2023. And I think over the summer, the FCA kind of announced and made some changes that it was providing firms uh, an additional three months to implement the new rules. Um, initially, it had said that implementation date was going to be April 30th but a lot of firms sort of complained that wasn't enough time and and the FCA then kind of came out and said companies will have until July 31st to implement the consumer duty rules for all new and existing products and services that are currently on sale. Now 
that the implementation deadline will be extended for, for a further 12 months. So taking you into July 31st, 2024 for closed book product to kind of give firms more time to bring these older products that are no longer on sale up to the new standards. The consumer duty in general has kind of had mixed views from advisors with some kind of saying, you know, it's just another burden that they have to take on. And and others have sort of compared it to the likes of RDR, which obviously just passed its 10 year anniversary and, and, and said that it will be quite successful and it will change kind of the way the industry operates and, and, and perhaps kind of a cultural shift too for a, a, what the way in which firms operate in general. So obviously that was kind of, one of the areas that that the FCA is focused on um, and the consumer duty is likely to sort of you know be here to in conversations and here to stay as a buzzword for 2023 but other consultations that it kind of proposed were also equally interesting and, and one area was in particular was its proposal to relax independent advice rules to make it kind of cheaper and easier for firms to advise consumers about certain mainstream investments within stocks and shares ISAs. So the consultation paper, which came out in November, in that the FCA said that it would create a, a separate, simplified financial advice regime to improve people's access to, to financial advice. And as part of that regime, the FCA said it would also create a um, new handbook definition of, of core investment advice. So the definition, you know, sort of proposed is that advice may only be given on investments into a new stocks and shares ISA and it may only relate to investments up to the value of an annual subscription limit set by the Treasury. Um, and, and there's sort of kind of a few more rules to it, but it, it said primarily it will limit the regime to advice relating to investments held within a stocks and shares ISA wrapper in order to keep the tax implications as mm -hmm. simple as possible for investors. So I think that that sort of the simplified advice alongside kind of the consumer duty rules is probably an area that we're going to see a lot around and, and, and a lot of kind of noise mm -hmm. around that. Sure. Interesting. Cool. And, 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 what, and what, what do you think is the FCA's likely focus going to be in, in 2023? So, yeah, I think in addition to kind of what I just said, the the consumer duty and simplified advice, the other area will probably be around the British Steel Pension Scheme redress scheme. Um, it launched in March and, and, and an update towards the end of last year, the FCA said firms uh, should provide BSPS members with their redress calculation by the end of December 2023 if individuals opt to receive it as a lump sum. So that would definitely be something we're hearing more about, uh, given it will take us all the way to December 2023. The regulator kind of said consumers should be contacted by their advisor between February 28th and March 28th. So early part of this year we will see that um and then advice is supposedly being reviewed by the end of september 2023 if that kind of doesn't change so a way in which i think firms will have to do that is that the the regulator said it is providing a tool for them to use to calculate redress payments and firms will kind of have to provide mm -hmm. details of all cases rated as suitable and it can kind of check if consumers would like uh, the FOS to independently review their advice. It also proposed an extension of its asset retention rules for firms who advise BSPS as the existing temporary rules are due to end at the end of this month on January 31st. So the, that extension will probably, uh, I think, come about. Um, it, it sort of, when it first announced the rules, it was in April and, it, and there was no consultation. It was just 
a policy statement that they put out because they were kind of concerned that firms may take steps to to get rid of those assets if they were consulted mm -hmm. on first. So yeah, I think in, in general, with, there's going to be a lot of uh, a stuff that the SEA is going to be focusing on. There's there's a number of consultations that came out in December. Um, so so there'll all be areas that we will see more about. I think in a nutshell, the the BSPS redress scheme, consumer duty, simplified advice, and and even so, the the advice guidance boundary will all be areas to watch. It's mm -hmm. it's safe to say that the FCA is is going to have a, a busy twenty twenty three for sure. Interesting, busy year for the FCA, and therefore probably a busy year for for advisors. Um, <laughs> Definitely, and for FT advisor, and for FT, absolutely <laughs> yes. Ruby, something that um, Sonia mentioned uh, several times there was the consumer duty, and that's something I think is really fascinating about uh, is how uh, is, is the impact that the consumer duty could potentially have on platforms. So how do you what, what impact do you think this this will have? Yeah, so I think it's it's really interesting because we're still trying to figure out what the impact will be on on platforms. I think one of the really big things that has been a theme in my reporting on platforms since I started. I know one of the first stories I ever worked on with platforms was on a platform transfer, which took far too long. And um, it was a client moving from one platform to the other. Uh, it took far too long. They were then thrown out the market. They had thousands of pounds that they meant they needed to draw down that they couldn't, um, which put them in a very precarious position. Um, and so that kind of made me realise kind of perhaps how far platforms still had to go to make processes for customers a lot more smooth and so I think I mean there has been a lot of folks from the FCA on trying to improve the transfer process but it's a chain kind of effort because you've got the firm managers also um and sort of the, the investment management side of things that also has to pay its part but so I think that the transfers is a big thing and and being able to transfer from one platform to the other is something that when the consumer duty comes in if the FCA can see platforms making that really difficult and it's not in the best interest of the consumer then you can imagine that, that they're going to kind of encounter far more trouble than they perhaps did before the consumer duty came in so it's obviously something you have to uh, you know aware of but the big thing with the consumer duty is you can't really qualify or define foreseeable harm it's a very open to interpretation phrase um, so it makes a lot easier for the FCA to uh, come down hard on firms, essentially. And I think that's one of the things platforms are going to have to be really careful of. And that foreseeable harm can come in lots of different forms. I did a story recently looking at FOS complaint uphold rates. And that was really interesting because the platforms that came out with the highest rates of complaints upheld um, by the financial ombudsman service were the platforms that had big tech migrations recently and big changes. So that was in Barkwell to Aberdeen and James Hay, or were going are going through changes now like James Hay. Interestingly, all FNZ clients as well. But it was what was interesting that Mike Barrett, the Landcat, said was that changes like tech migrations could be interpreted as foreseeable harm that could be avoided and that's obviously one of the things in the consumer duty that providers and advisors alike need to avoid so it's not just on platforms advisors also need to be looking at the platforms that they're using and help to make that foreseeable harm assessment and that, that's what Mike Barrett said to me essentially that advisors need to keep an eye on this as much as platforms do but I do think that that's going to be one of, of the big areas that the platforms need to be wary of. And I know some platforms have been investing in it. I know M&G, for example, um, Rich Denning, CEO of M&G PLC, told me that um, M&G has been investing in transfers this year to make it as easy to leave the platform as it is to join it. And so and I know other platforms have been doing the same. So, yeah, hopefully in 2023, we'll see more of that. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the other areas where there's been uh, movement in, in, in the platform market recently has been in the area of fees. What, what, do, what do you think the future is for, for platform fees? Yeah, I mean, platform fees is a, is a topic. You know, advisors have donated it for, for years because it is something that directly impacts the client. And so it is a big area of, of kind of can be frustration a lot of the time because we've had a fee structure that's not had much innovation, I would say, um, or that that's sort of having done a full year in the platform space, I would say that the innovation has perhaps not been as much as it could be. We've obviously traditionally had this ad valorem structure or percentage of assets fee. And I know that now having spoken to advisors in forums or advisors discuss topics like this in that there is a push towards more platforms considering a flat fee versus a percentage of fee. Um, so there is definitely appetite among advisors for that. Whether platforms decide to do it is obviously another question. I know that some consultants in the platform space reckon that there is a potential for some platforms to start charging a flat fee if markets continue to be very volatile because it's obviously a bit more stable as a revenue stream. And obviously some platforms are more mm. sort of uh, under stress right now than others. You know, a lot of the private equity back platforms, because of interest rates going up, that is squeezing bottom lines a bit more than, than perhaps the platforms that aren't PE backed. So that so would be really interesting. And, and, and some platforms have, have made some interesting points. I mean, I was sitting in on a lunch not that long ago with Nobia and one of the execs there made the point that perhaps uh, advisors would pay some of the platform fee in the future if if platforms can reduce the time that advisors spend on processes to do with platforms, I guess, so make them more efficient. And, you know, I did actually speak to advisors about this and it was interesting. Some of the things they said, they basically said that a lot of them felt like advisor platforms were already too expensive especially when you compare them to like overseas uh, markets and um, they feel like the UK platform space is a bit more expensive than perhaps the US and Australia and they also feel like the service the level of service I mean go back to the transfers mm-hmm. that I was just talking about the level of service is not where it should be so like there's a feeling definitely amongst advisors that there's no way they're going to want to pay more right now if anything the service needs to actually reflect the price being charged so there's lots of room for change. I think one of the other big topics that people have been quite vocal about is, well, we're touching on private equity and that impact on platforms and how they price things. Um, with interest rates going up this year, it has seen uh, some platforms holding a lot of cash and not necessarily paying out interest on it. And a lot of people in the platform space have been quite passionate about expressing how that isn't the best thing for the customer. Again, links back to consumer duty. Those platforms will probably have to reassess their structures in terms of cash holdings. I know that um mentioned so Rich Denning over at uh, M&G again. He said to me that he feels like um, CEOs and boards of platforms that are doing this, absorbing that interest rate rise rather than paying it back out to clients will really kind of come into conflict with the consumer duty and he suggests that maybe these these CEOs will have a bit of an epiphany was his words and sure. do the right thing for, for customers time will tell sure interesting and, and finally one of the areas where there's been a huge amount of um noise uh in recent uh in, in, in over the past year and maybe over the past few years has been the area of uh, the the diy platform space you've had a few uh, people who come come into this market um, you know, your Seco's, your Hubwise's, these sorts of companies. Um, what's next for, for this sector? Um, have, we've seen a lot of um, developments in this space, but yeah, what, where where is it going? 
Well, I think what will be really interesting to see next is how established players react. Some are already reacting, but I know that some are in the motions but haven't quite announced that they're reacting. So, yeah, like you said, just to recap, there have been some deals announced this year. Um, you've got Fairstone's deal with FNZ. They're looking to, to make a new platform um, for younger clients. Then you've got Ascot Lloyd and Atomos, formerly Sandland Wells, tie-ups with Hubwise. Um, and then you've got these providers a bit like Hubwise, so you've also got Seckle, Third Financial, Platform One, Mall Trees, all these ones that provide white label offerings. Or they don't like to call them white label because I guess white label could mean anything from a wholly customized platform to a platform with a different name on it. So I guess they like to say customized platform. So you've got lots of players providing this service. And I think that established players are starting to take notice. And, and that's largely down to a big advice firms starting to consider the model more. Um, we've obviously got the ones I just mentioned, but then you've also got uh, Kingswood. I spoke to their chief executive, um, David Lawrence, recently. Um, and he said he was very open-minded to the white label platform opportunity. They're also potentially looking at cutting down the number of platforms they use. So the more big advice firms show an interest in this model, the more platforms are going to, you know, rear rear up and and take notice we're also hearing that in certain platform pitches a lot of the sort of more established names aren't necessarily being considered as much uh, because these customized models are are more interesting and i was a bit wary of this because you know i'd I'd had research from consultants as more anecdotal kind of talking to advice firms and they'd said to me that, that the appetite for this was drying up but i think it very much depends but you know because we're talking about lots of different models here we're talking about anything from something customized um, where the advice firm takes custody responsibility to something where they don't have custody responsibility and they can kind of pick and choose what controls they do and don't want. Platform One works really well in that way. Um, it allows you to kind of pick and choose the controls you do and don't want. And I think that's what we're going to see established players start to to look at. I mean, p- players like Embark already do a bit of white labelling and it's part of their business. And I know Jackie uh, Leeper, the um, boss at Embark, is really interested in in the white labeling business um but then also um, nucleus told told me recently that it's actually looking at potentially giving more controls to advisors but it is also very wary of the kind of custody worry that advisors don't want to take on too much responsibility so i think what you'll see is this hybrid white label proposition in 2023 mm-hmm. that allows advisors to kind of take some controls but not all and I guess that's where microservices are going to come in, a topic that lots of platform industry people are, are love to say. It's a big buzzword. But I think you'll actually start to see that play out properly in terms of how advisors use platforms. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we've all had uh, conversations with people at some point in the past 12 months where the word microservices has been mentioned multiple times. Yes. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, that's, uh, there's definitely a lot, a lot of food for thought there, a lot going on and potentially uh, a, a potentially another busy year in 2023. Thank you to my colleagues, Sally, Ruby, Sonia and Jane. And thank you for listening. I wish you again a happy new year and tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.